Dear listeners, you are tuned in to WOWD 94.3 FM, and this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday, one hour at a time, right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listeners, in the beginning... Well, something happened. What exactly and how long it did is the subject of much debate. But the point is, dear listeners, that we are here right now. And if we're not careful, we might not be here very much longer. So in this episode, we'll be exploring the emerging efforts to enlist, educate, and empower ecumenical engagement to eliminate the environmental emergencies expediating the existential endgame. In other words, it's time to get into some interfaith-ish. Dear listeners, I'm joined this morning in studio by two terrific guests. They work together, they collaborate together, they got up early this morning to come in together to our little shoebox of a studio. Welcome to our show, Joelle Novi and Avery Davis-Lamb. Good morning. Good to be here. Joelle Novi is the fearless director of Interfaith Power and Light, DMV, that's D.C., Maryland, and Virginia for folks outside the Capital Region. Joelle is also the author, the co-author of Green and Just Celebrations, a purchasing guide distributed by Jews United for Justice to local congregations for assisting families in making greener purchasing decisions around weddings and bar and bat mitzvah celebrations. And I'll say, because I've known Joelle for almost a decade now, she's honestly the most about it and down for the cause people that I've ever met. Uh, she lives her life with incredible integrity, and I'm very proud to call you a friend. Aw, shucks. <laughs> and over in this corner is Avery Davis-Lamb, who is IPL DMV's Director of Faithful Advocacy. Avery connects religious communities in the region with environmental campaigns to expand clean energy, providing a distinctly moral response to the climate crisis. He also serves as the federal policy associate for National Interfaith Power and Light, advocating for creation and climate on Capitol Hill on behalf of the 40 state affiliates and over 20,000 congregations in the IPL network. And he's currently a member of Foundry United Methodist Church in D.C., where he co-leads the God and Green Outdoors group. I've just met Avery for the first time, um, but he seems like a real stand-up guy and has a wonderful <laughs> smile. Oh, so you. welcome this morning, Avery. All right, so uh, first question is, is the earth doomed? And uh, if it's all part of God's plan, then what does it all matter anyway? Uh <laughs> So we are we we have a serious problem mm-hmm. here on this planet. Um, our burning fossil fuels for electricity and animal agriculture and transportation are pouring heat trapping climate pollution into our atmosphere. Ninety seven percent of scientists agree that we are um, warming our Earth uh, about one point four degrees Fahrenheit over the last hundred fifty years, and the speed at which our Earth is getting warmer is. Uh, accelerating faster and faster. Um, this does pose really uh, urgent challenges to all of us in terms of stronger storms, flooding, um, uh, in, uh, disease uh, as mosquitoes thrive in warmer temperatures. Um, lot, you know, some species might not be able to rapidly adapt. Um, but uh, are we doomed? Uh, 
we have locked in some of the warming that will happen no matter what we do now, but we have a critical decision to make in the next 10 years mm -hmm. about the future we will face. Uh, so no, this is a critical moment to actually decide um, as human beings, uh, the kind of world we want to live in. And what about that, that second part of it, right? The, the, the God factor in all of this. Yeah. Well, speaking from the Christian tradition, I, I think of Jesus declaring the kingdom of heaven is, is all about human flourishing with each other and the God's plan for us is human flourishing and, and really flourishing of all creation. And I think it's pretty clear that that we've created a world that prevents flourishing from happening. Mm -hmm. And like Joelle said, if we don't change our practices substantially and quickly, then that flourishing is, is going to be even further away. So God's plan is for us to love each other and love the world. And we have a critical decision to make. Great. So how does IPL then help engage people in that and convince people of that if they are um, doubtful of that, those 97% of the, of the uh, scientists that you referred to earlier? Because climate change is a way that human beings and, and all of us are affecting our neighbors and affecting the world that our neighbors uh, will be able to live in, it is, we think, a perfect issue to talk about in our congregations, mm. in our faith communities. Actually, we think it's one of the best places in the world to talk about climate change. Um, for a variety of reasons, climate change has become a very politicized issue mm -hmm. in our world and certainly in our country. Um, and folks think maybe they shouldn't believe in the science if they have a particular uh, political identity. Uh, whereas when we talk about climate change in people's faith communities, in a church, in a synagogue, in a masjid, um, in a temple, uh, we, we don't even have to say we are reframing this as a moral issue. People listen differently in their congregations. Mm -hmm. They listen with their moral ears and they hear what we are talking about in that context as, uh, as a decision about how we want to live in, as, as Avery said, in, in harmony with each other. Um, and so I've, I've just come to believe in the unique, critical uh, power of opening climate conversations in folks' faith communities. So what does that look like on a day-to-day -day level? You know, people may be on board with those ideas, certainly loving each other, caring for creation, all those things that um, spiritually or phil philosophically seem like they're fairly easy wins if people are open um, to it. So so what does that look like in terms of actually behavior change? Yeah, our, our orientation to behavior change and, and to aligning ourselves with what the climate crisis calls us into is framing this as a way for folks to live more deeply into their own values and into their own faith. So there's a moral opportunity presented here to respond to climate change, to deepen ourselves in love for each other. And so um, that's the framing that we use. And then we offer real ways for that to happen. So we, we like to think of our work in three different areas. The first is education, which is just this work of talking about climate change you know, from a scientific level, from a, a policy level, just so people understand climate and how it relates to their faith. The second is greening. So offering behavioral changes, both at the personal and the congregational level, so that as individuals and as communities, we're aligning ourselves more with what it requires to respond to the climate crisis. And the third is speaking out. 
And that means both uh, speaking out with our neighbors. We face a big problem of climate silence that we just don't talk about climate change, but also speaking out in a, in a public and a political way because this is a public and a political issue and, and it requires public and political solutions. So if we can have a moral framework on that and a moral approach to those public solutions, then that both deepens our communities and deepens whatever those solutions are. Mm -hmm. Joel, how did you first get involved with uh, environmental activism and, and making this a priority in your life? Was your community particularly um, out front on, on these issues growing up? Uh, no. <laughs> I grew up in, uh, in Jewish communities in Baltimore, um, and I, I remember thinking, you know, this is pretty radical stuff. If we took this seriously, this idea that human beings are each made in God's image, for example, mm. that is a radical teaching that would have a lot of implications for um, working to change policy uh, in in Baltimore and, and beyond. Um, but but it, but that we didn't connect those dots, uh, or or I didn't see them being connected at that time. Um, since then, uh, in my adult life, I've uh, I've been actively you know, trying at every in every moment to invite my own communities to really take our teaching seriously and think about what that would mean to apply in every aspect of life. Um, I helped found uh, a Jewish congregation that meets here in the D.C. area in uh, church basements mm -hmm. on Friday nights called Sikun Lal Shabbat, where we put uh, a teaching about social justice issue at the center of every time we gather. And now I, you know, at Interfaith Power and Light, we we're getting I'm getting to challenge everybody in all kinds of congregations to think about likewise what would what would fully living out their own teachings their own values with respect to to what's happening to our climate look like you've been involved in public engagement and so forth on a number of different levels for for a while it sounds like as as a young person you were yeah. thinking about these issues and uh and the environment like i said at the beginning it, it's like it's you that is so your thing when i think of <laughs> environmental activism i think of joelle novi um i think so uh a number of years ago, I was working at Green America, which was sort of green uh, purchasing and investing advice for folks. And um, and around that time, the movie Inconvenient Truth came out. Mm. And I think that was the first time I really focused on the climate challenge mm. per se. And and once you take it to heart, it's hard to think about anything else. Yeah. <laughs> um, and now I feel like I, even though it is really hard to be a climate advocate and it's really hard to actually think about climate <laughs> science directly, it's very... Um, it, it, it's, it's so big. It's big and it's daunting and it's and it's scary and you know so it's it is not easy to kind of uh, stay stay focused on this issue, but I sort of feel like I have I have to otherwise I wouldn't be true to who I am. Mm -hmm. You know that the Jewish communities I grew up in um, uh, cherished children and thought about you know the future generations and the continuity of the tradition as as kind of this. Um, this assurance that we had a connection to eternity because yeah. we have this ancient tradition that we received and then we are passing it on to the next generation. The idea that we are going to write off the, the world in which those, that next generation might be, you know, be able to live is just anathema to the values I learned growing up. Mm. Um, likewise, there's a kind of fierce uh, protection of life. And mm. whenever life is at stake, every other rule goes out the window because Jewish tradition prioritizes um, uh saving life. Whoever saves a single human life, it's as if they saved a whole world. Mm. Um, and so it's clear that, that, you know, climate change will have, um, will, will take human lives and take 
just just harm life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and finally, you know, there's a ascension Jewish tradition of the creation itself being sanctified in some sense, and that you know whether no matter how literally you take the idea that God created the world, there is a kind of uh, sense that um, that this is a sacred that the world is sacred, <laughs> mm-hmm. and that the natural world has sanctity. Um, and so that kind of writing off species or letting um, wholesale destruction of ecosystems also goes against who I am. So there's mm-hmm. a, uh, I feel in doing this work now that, that it's tempting to opt out, but I would lose more than I would gain mm. by doing that. I would lose a, a connection to the, my, my own deepest values, to my ancestors, to, to those future generations. It would be much too lonely mm-hmm. to let it to put it aside. Instead, I have to stay in the game. Yeah. Avery, what about for you? Uh, when you were growing up, were these likewise uh, priority issues that you were thinking about in your congregation? These were not priority issues in my faith community growing up. So I, I grew up in Topeka, Kansas at a Southern Baptist church. And you might imagine that we didn't talk about the environment, definitely didn't hear the words climate change mm. in my faith community. But there were certain values instilled in my family community on caring for creation, on being good stewards. And despite my religious upbringing being separated from creation, I had a spiritual upbringing that was very integrated Mm -hmm. with creation, Mm -hmm. spending Sunday afternoons in the garden with my mom going hiking on the the local trails near the governor's mansion. You know, these experiences that were deeply spiritual, but weren't connected with my religion. Mm -hmm. And so that was the case really through um, all of my childhood, all of my high school years. And I I had a moment um, after my first semester at college where I came back to Kansas City, Kansas City area, for an evangelical Christian conference and I, I had what Pope Francis calls an ecological conversion. Mm. So this is, I, I, I was walking around this conference center, there are 35,000 people here, all coming out to worship Jesus. And there were social issues that, that there were workshops on, mostly global poverty, human trafficking, these kinds of things. And it just occurred to me that no one here is talking about the environment as an issue. Mm. They weren't quoting the Pope's encyclical. Well, it was, it was conference. before the Pope's encyclical. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was before, but, um, you know, but despite all of the scripture, despite, you know, Jesus coming incarnate to this earth and giving dignity to physical creation, there was just no mention mm. of this world being something that we need to save. It was, it was people oriented, which, mm-hmm. you know, is, is good to be people oriented, but, but nothing beyond that. No recognition that, our environmental crises are harming people. So I, I went away from that with a thirst to find the people in my tradition who are writing and thinking about environmentalism being connected to the Christian faith and stumbled upon this world of creation care. Mm. Um, yeah, so and, break that down for us. What does that, what does that mean yeah, in the context of your tradition? Yeah, so, so uh, creation care is, is you know... It, from my perspective, it grows out of Genesis 2, really, is that God had this good creation and that, you know, God created Adam out of the dust of the ground and 
tasked Adam to go forth and care for the garden. And so then if we think of this world as our garden, then it is our work as the human being, as this this dirt person, which the Hebrew would, would translate to, to, to care for our Garden of Eden. Mm, beautiful. If you're just joining us, this is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We're talking this morning with Joel Novi and Avery Davis-Lamb of Interfaith Power and Light DMV. So um, you mentioned uh, Laudato Si, and uh, last month in the Religion News Service, there was a, a bit of sparring uh, in the opinion column on the topic of what to do about climate change, specifically referencing um, the Pope's uh, eco-encyclical. And writer Charles uh, Camosi opined that the uh, hotly debated Green New Deal uh, is an inferior document to uh, Pope Francis's um, Laudato Si, which calls for a cultural change more than the political one. Um, and there was a response from Professor Mark Silk, who argued that it's not an either-or scenario in the political versus uh, cultural spaces. So I'm curious how you see um, these two documents. Do we need a cultural shift like Pope Francis is talking about primarily or uh, before we can expect a political one? Or is AOC's Green New Deal uh, just as much about ethics and morality as it is about legislating? First, I want to just recommend to anyone who has not read the Pope's encyclical that it's an extraordinary document, and it addresses itself mm. not just to Catholics, but to all people alive on earth, all people of goodwill right now. Um, and this Jewish reader of the encyclical has found it so uh, inspiring and valuable and grounding um, for personally and in my work. Mm. One of the questions it asks uh, is actually a quote from Pope Benedict, the previous Pope, who says... Our external deserts are expanding because the internal deserts have become so vast. In other words, diagnosing the climate crisis in terms of uh, spiritual failures in our own hearts, in our own communities. And I find that to be an incredibly powerful question in every kind of faith community. How does the, the ecological imbalance, the climate injustice that we're witnessing outside actually stem from errors we've made in the way we think about uh, our role in the world and our role in the natural world um, here in our communities and how can we begin to trans open our hearts and transform our communities in light of that information. So, mm -hmm. uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll hand it off to Avery to talk a little bit about how we are thinking about um, approaching the, the, the need for a Green New Deal in our nation. But uh, first, I just wanted to get plug <laughs> The Pope's encyclical is a fantastic um, spiritual guide. Yeah, yeah. I think that that is absolutely a false dichotomy. And I think that is making the same error that has gotten us into this problem. That dichotomizing the cultural change versus the political change. And like Joel was saying, dichotomizing the the spiritual change and the internal change versus the external change. And we need both the Pope's encyclical and the Green New Deal. And I would say both are moral documents. Mm. You know, one is a religious document, one is a political document, but both are moral documents because they have profound impact on how we live in harmony with each other. Mm -hmm. What about the, the political advocacy side? What, what work do you do in that space? Yeah, so we approach the political advocacy in, in the same way that we approach the the personal change, the pol the personal advocacy, which is a values framework inviting people, whether they're lawmakers or advocates, into 
um, alignment with with the values of their religious traditions. So specifically with the Green New Deal, how we're approaching this is uh, we put together some faith principles for a Green New Deal. So as our country is considering what a Green New Deal might look like, both legislatively and even culturally, we, we've tried to reflect how our faiths call us into that. So things like truth and science and reconciliation and interdependence across boundaries, whether that's um, socioeconomic boundaries, racial boundaries, even political boundaries, our, our faith traditions are, are calling us to go beyond all those mm -hmm. and, and depend on each other. Mm -hmm. So that's the framework that we work with. Um, are there specific pieces of legislation recently that you all have, have uh, uh, promoted and encouraged folks to, to align with? As much as we work uh, at the federal level, we, we also have had a lot of really exciting opportunities to champion strong climate policy at the lo local and state level in the last little while. Um, uh, about uh, some months ago, we uh, helped be the faith advocates for pa the passage of a 100% clean energy law in the District of Columbia. Mm. Um, and just last week, we found out that um, the Clean Energy Jobs Act, a uh, something that puts Maryland on track for 100% renewable energy, uh, is going to pass into law as well after two years of work with every kind of Maryland faith community. Cool. Um, we are very... Uh, very involved as the sort of faith liaison to some of the major climate coalitions in this region. Mm -hmm. We really invite folks who are hearing this this morning and feeling like you want to get connected to responding to climate change to find some way to engage in advocacy uh, to really change policy. It's not about your, per you know, it, we, it's not primarily about our personal choices, but about coming together in a climate movement to change policy around how we use energy and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen over and over again that, first of all, being part of advocacy campaigns gives faith communities hope because anything else we do feels too small scale to really kind of feel like you're getting at something that's a global <laughs> problem. Mm -hmm. But when we work, come together and pass p policies that are, you know, Maryland leading the nation, um, that starts to get up at the scale that feels meaningful. Mm -hmm. So I really encourage anyone who's feeling hopeless about climate change to become part of a climate movement, whether it's through your faith community or um, through, you know, another community that's important to you so that you are um, part of something much bigger than yourself. Cause I, I find that to be the best antidote to hopelessness around this mm. work. I also see us elevating and transforming the advocacy campaigns of which we are a part by, as Avery said, reframing them as moral issues um, getting political attention sometimes that's hard for the usual suspect organizations to get because we are, uh, you know, sometimes when a, a bishop or or uh, or a, a rabbi uh, shows up at a hearing and testifies as a faith leader on these on uh, climate issues, uh, legislators who weren't paying attention, you know, just look up and turn and tune in and and. Uh, suddenly have a moment of understanding this this may transcend politics. It mm -hmm. is about our responsibilities to each other. Have there been unlikely partners, you know, talking about the usual suspects, but are there other other folks that you've you've shown up at the congregation and said, you know what, I'm I'm not sure if we're gonna have a win here, but wow, actually people are are, are responsive. They're listening. My orientation is to assume that anywhere there is a faith community, there's a group of people there who are responding mm. to climate change. Mm. 
And sometimes the group is smaller and sometimes the group is giant. But my experience has been if I look deep enough, every faith group is responding to climate change in their own way. Mm -hmm. And it could just be a small contingent of, of quote, radicals in, <laughs> in that group. But, um, but there are allies everywhere. Mm -hmm. And there are unlikely allies in a lot of those places. And so you just, you just keep knocking on doors and showing up at, at, uh, at Sunday services and so forth. And, Absolutely, uh, yeah. And it's this, this grassroots orientation that we have, just a, a belief that the people... It's not always the faith leaders. In fact, it's usually not the faith leaders. It's it's the lay folks who are in congregations who are the ones doing this work day in and day out. Yeah. And uh, if we ask around and if we talk around and if we talk about climate change, then then those people will will find us and yeah. we'll find them. I'm curious if if you're you have to tailor your language differently when you're working in different spaces. Obviously, on the political side of things, there are these nuances of using where do you say climate change and the idea of climate resiliency when you're talking about infrastructure um, changes. And, you know, it's, it sounds rather alarmist to say climate crisis or catastrophe. So do you feel like you change up how you're talking about this depending on your audience? Or are you pretty consistent in, in your messaging? I've been doing this almost every weekend for about 10 years <laughs> and have thought a lot about how do you open a conversation about climate change in a faith community. And, uh, you know, I've been uh, in circles of folding chairs in many, many church basements and mm. other congregations where, um, where we, we try, we're trying to, to open hearts to think about these issues. I think actually the, the, the things I've learned are more common to the faith traditions than they're, than they're different. Um, I, I find one of the most important things is to acknowledge that people have feelings about climate change, that if they look closely at the science, uh, even for a few minutes, they're going to have feelings of, of anxiety, loss, fear, anger sometimes that this wasn't addressed sooner, um, j just grief that, that the world that they grew up in may not be the world that they're... Um, children are able to live in um, grief at the idea of losing a lot of species. Um, so I find that warning folks that they may have feelings before we talk and then showing a lot of care and compassion about the fact that those feelings are going to come up and then containing that uh, carefully and giving folks a moment to turn to a neighbor and reflect about what they're, um, what they're feeling about this information I find is the, is a, is the single element that mm. is most helpful. Um, I, I, I have come to believe that a lot of the resistance folks express to climate science is actually about um, feeling not, like they don't have a forum in which to articulate mm. or process that this is extremely upsetting mm. information. And it, you talked about God's plan. It's also, it's it, it also upends people's ideas about right. how the universe works, how, right. how God and human beings and the weather interact um, so letting them do the talking, basically, to talk through what it is that they're feeling about it. Definitely. Rather than def being prescriptive. <laughs> that's one That's mm -hmm. one thing. I find um, uh, I invite folks to say what they've heard will happen if we don't do anything mm. about climate change so that it is harder for them to – they hear their own community expressing concern um, and, and are not just getting uh, dire messages from the front of the room from me, uh, but hearing that their own peers – in their own community that, that they care about um, uh, are feeling some concern about this. Um, and then in terms of language, uh, 
I talk about climate pollution. I find that to be a, a stronger and more intuitive word than emissions or gases. Uh, people know about what pollution is and they know that it's bad. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I have found that reiterating the scientific consensus, this is actually, soci sociologists have shown this, uh, but I, I've taken it to heart that if you reiterate that 97% of scientists agree with, with settled climate science, uh, that is very persuasive to people. So I always reiterate, and you heard me do that earlier in this show, reiterate the climate, the scientific consensus whenever I'm talking about climate change. This is Interfaith-ish on WOWD 94.3 FM. We've been talking this morning with Joelle Novi and Avery Davis-Lamb from Interfaith Power and Light DMV. As we do uh, every episode, we have a chance to have our guests ask some questions of each other. Sometimes our guests are meeting for the first time, but today we have two colleagues who are working shoulder to shoulder daily. But as we know in interfaith work, there's always more to explore. So this is an opportunity for the two of you to ask each other anything that you'd like to follow up on about each other's spiritual journey or life stories, anything you are familiar with coming in today that you want to understand better about each other's traditions, anything you realize you may have misunderstood. On our show, we seek to model constructive and respectful dialogue in the spirit of learning, while at the same time not being afraid to roll up our sleeves and get into some interfaith-ish. So, uh, Joelle, do you have a question for Avery? Well, I've been uh, in, in our work at Interfaith Power and Light over and over again, we have demonstrated when we meet with folks in their communities uh, that people come to climate action from every kind of faith tradition. Um, and it's been um, really fun that for me that that, that um, is manifest in, even in our office and in our team where um, uh, Avery and I come to this work uh, from like totally different backgrounds um, and like growing up in a city uh, uh, as a Jewish kid on the East Coast um, uh, in contrast to Avery coming from uh, – from the fields, <laughs> from the farmland of Kansas, um, and an evangelical Christian context, uh, and that we both find our way to be passionate about this shared work of addressing the climate crisis through interfaith power and light is just uh, reminds me about the power of the of the work we're doing together. Um, my my question for Avery uh, relates to you know you had talked about the sort of distance you've come from the uh, congregations, uh, churches you grew up in, in terms of uh, them not, not addressing climate change or really creation care at all. Um, and, you know, in the last few years, there's been uh, much, much ink spilt about sort of the ways that especially white, evangelical communities have been more enabling of Trump, for example, than, um, than many people would have expected or hoped. Um, and really a lot of soul searching about the, the role of, um, the, especially like sort of evangelical white churches in, in our world and in solving our problems going forward. Um, but I am curious when you think, back to the congregations of your childhood, what you think they ha they are getting right and do have to teach us. 
So I think it's it's what I want to start out with is a distinction between political evangelicalism and theological evangelicalism. And I think the 81% is more of a political label than a theological label. Of course, there's a lot of overlap there. Say more um, about the 81%. Oh, oh that's the 81% of uh, white evangelicals who voted for Trump. That's shorthand, the 81%, as, <laughs> as we say. Um, and, you know, that is because there has been a political sellout for power in that community that has very little bearing on the theology of evangelicalism. So despite having moved away from evangelicalism, uh, more towards mainline Christian denominations, I think there's a lot of that that is still rooted in the way I approach this work and the way I approach my spirituality, um, particularly just this word evangelism or evangelical is spreading the good news. That's where it comes from. And obviously the, the good news is defined differently by the political label of evangelicals, but I, I, so appreciate this commitment to sharing the good news, not just not just keeping it within a community or um, as I see in, in some of our more liberal denominations, you know, focusing solely on on social justice or political change, but but really inviting others in to the good news of the gospel, which is, as I said earlier, this good news of the kingdom of heaven coming to earth and inviting human flourishing for all people. And so I, I think some of our more liberal congregations have lost this evangelism piece of sharing because of the political issues with the word evangelical. Um, but I think that really is a loss because there is good news to be shared. And if it's the good news that we can respond to climate change and that there's hope then our people need to hear that. That's evangelism even I could get behind. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Avery, what do you have for, for Joel? Any questions? Uh, yeah, so I've learned a lot uh, working in an interfaith organization over the last two years, and I have a lot more to learn. Um, one of the pieces of the Jewish tradition that I love so much is this concept of tikkun olam, which... I would love to hear more about, but I'm I'm going to give my my own interpretation of that, and Joel can correct me if I get anything wrong. Which is um, repairing the world, and our tradition doesn't have that. You know, ours is there will be a world restored. There's a new kingdom of heaven coming down, but it's not repairing what we have. Um, so that is my holy envy of the Jewish tradition. So um, I think first, I'd love to hear more about how you're driven by tikkun olam. And then second, what is your holy envy for the Christian tradition? I do feel in the Jewish tradition, a call to action. And that is the element of the tradition, I think, that guides me the most in this work. Uh, the There's a some Jewish teachings brought together by uh, my teacher, Rabbi Fred Sherlander Dov, who talks about the, the circumstances in which the rabbis said it was okay to break the Shabbat rules to save someone's life. Um, so the rabbis 
uh, of the Jewish tradition took Sabbath observance very seriously. So if they were saying that the rules could be suspended in certain situations, you knew that that was important. So at first, the original teaching says, uh, if, if a doctor says that life is at stake, you may break Shabbat to heal someone. And then later commentator says, well, even doubtful danger to human life makes the law lenient. So if one doctor, if there's not scientific consensus, if one doctor says you need to break Shabbat to save someone's life and the other doctor says it's not necessary, you still err on the side of breaking Shabbat to save their life. And then a subsequent commentary, and you get a sense of the dialectic nature of the Jewish tradition here, a subsequent commentary by, uh, says, uh, by the Middle Ages, says uh, if... Um, you don't even need a doctor. If there's no expert present, if you think it might save someone's life to break Sabbath to uh, address their medical needs, you, you still do so because you're forbidden to delay the treatment. And finally, uh, a, a final commentator uh, remarks, um, uh, the person who rushes to break Shabbat in a, a case of doubtful danger to human life, this is praiseworthy. But the person who stops to ask more questions and kind of futz around, that's a murderer. Mm. So from my own tradition, I get this kind of unequivocal call to proactive intervention. <laughs> that you do not sit around asking more questions. Uh, you, you, when, when there is a situation like the one we find ourselves in with the climate crisis, where all indications are that life may be at stake and that our intervention might... Um, might make a difference, even though some elements of that exact situation are uncertain. We are mandated to just start getting, you know, not to, not to, not to endlessly delay, but to kind of um, get involved in every way we can with all our power and all our might starting now. Um, that said, when I think about what I have to learn from the Christian tradition, uh, uh, I have learned a lot from some of the ideas that, that it's okay sometimes to to kind of wait on things and let let yourself be led by your sense of what of the spirit. The the idea of being called is one that um, I think is very helpful. Um, uh, I've heard from uh, Christian leaders about the idea of waiting on the spirit when you're not sure about what to do about something, and you know, waiting on anything is not something I get from the Jewish tradition. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, um, but I find it a very helpful idea that sometimes you don't have to figure things out. You just have to like, listen for the still small voice and, and, and attend to where you're being led by, um, you know, by God's voice, however you understand it. So, um, so I appreciate uh, my Christian colleagues sometimes helping me in general, I have a spirit, a strong spirit of intervention, but sometimes uh, a little bit of contemplation first can be uh, grounding and helpful. I have another question. Um, so you have two young children. Yes. And uh, I'm a millennial. And so I think a lot about how life is going to be different for me. And it's, it's going to be even different, more different for your kids. Yeah. And what keeps me going is this hope in a world restored, like I mentioned earlier. And it's, it's this, this concept of hope that is really core to Jesus's teaching. And so I'm wondering what, what keeps you going? What is your, your version of hope or what word would you use um, and keeps you committed to working towards a better world for your children? 
in Jewish communities, the highest praise you can give someone is that they are a mensch, which is German for human being, mm. right? So, uh, or Yiddish for human being. So, uh, just just that a fully human human is our goal. And and when I get overwhelmed and and even despondent about kind of the world that we're facing. Um, I return again and again to this challenge of what does it mean to be a human being in this time? And that's all I can, that's all I can do. It's all I can give my kids um, is a sense of what would it look like to be a human being today? And what would it look like to be a human being tomorrow? Especially I think in a, a time, like living in Washington DC in a time where I feel like a lot of the political rhetoric is, um, is sort of abdicating what, what I think of as core human responsibilities to each other and human values. Uh, it, it feels important and radical and all, all I can really offer to, to ask again and again, what does it look like to be a human being today in response to the things I see going on? What, do, what does it look like to be a human being tomorrow? Another image from the Hebrew Bible that I've been um, holding on to in the last few um, last few weeks in particular is uh, the Jacob wrestling with the angel. So he didn't look for that fight. Like somebody came up on him and like attacked him basically. And he ended up in this like struggle all night long um, and got injured. It was like a bad fight. Um, but in the end he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Right. He managed to kind of wrest a blessing out of a fight he didn't choose. And I, that to me feels like what it's like, living in this generation <laughs> that we we did not choose to live in the generation where we're the first generations to be experiencing climate change and the last generation that can do anything about it here we are though and it and it's it, it, we're in the fight of our lives i do believe that we if we do it right we'll be able to wrest a blessing from this time and and one of those blessings i think is transcending faith differences to be able to work together in a new way and recognizing our common humanity. I think climate change calls us to that recognition. Um, if I can jump in, just sort of connecting with some of those ideas. You know, you're, you're somebody that's been involved with civil disobedience in the past, who's been arrested for, for actions. Um, you know, you've got, at, on the one hand, you know, the, the urgency of the situation seems like it's, it's only increasing, right? On the other hand, you've got small kids at home that you, you obviously you want to be around for. So what for you have have you in your household um have you talked about like what are the what are the the limits for yourself or what how how far are you willing to go for this what are the things that and and frankly when you're talking to other people about it right because these are urgent um issues that we're talking about you know balancing the 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 urgency of it but also, as you were saying before, sort of the waiting on the spirit and being a bit more, you know, patient was sort of the, 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 the long, you know, the long game, you know, as short as it might actually end up being if we're not careful. Just as it, a, a thriving ecosystem needs every kind of plant and animal in mm -hmm. it to be effective um, and, and, and alive, I really do believe in that we all have a role to play in the climate movement and we can all find um, the tactics and approaches and communities where we want to be and and that uh, you know I I was more willing to risk arrest uh, personally um, uh, before I had little kids at home um, 
and I will be again when I'm in it, like slightly differently situated. But um, but now I have had a lot of meaningful experiences bringing my kids to testify. Um, I, I spoke uh, at the EPA hearings about re, uh, rolling back uh, some mercury safeguards, uh, and I, I thought it was even more powerful that I testified holding my five week, uh, seven week old um, because mercury harms uh, children and and uh, babies uh, in particular, mm. uh, and so I think actually you know embracing that who who I am and my situation. Uh, in that moment actually made me a stronger advocate in some ways, uh, even if it c keeps me from other kinds of engagement. So I really invite everyone listening to find whoever you are, whether or not you ha personally have a congregation in your life right now, you have some communities in which people care what you think and some communities where you will be able to open conversations about climate change. And re regardless, again, of your particular gifts or or capacity you have some way to lend your strength and and um bring yourself to this fight we we need everybody beautiful so uh avery how how if people are listening to this and they want to become more involved here about ipl's work either here in the dmv area or uh more nationally how can folks get involved with uh with the work that you're doing yeah absolutely i think um find us online ipldmv.org is a great place to start out um, the second thing that, that we encourage folks to do is just start talking about climate change in your congregation, find, find these green leaders who are the, the lay leaders in your congregation who are also thinking about this, get a team together and join this movement of people of faith who are, who are acting on climate. Um, and then make sure and get connected with us again, IPLDMV.org is, is the place to find, find out how to, how to get connected with the broader movement. Great. Well, thank you both so much for being here this morning. This was a lot of fun. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Dear listeners, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my terrific guests, Joelle Novi and Avery Davis-Lamb of Interfaith Power and Light DMV. Thank you both so much for joining us this morning. As always, I want to give a shout out to my fellow interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz Miller, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher. And thank you, dear listeners, for spending your hour with us. You can find our entire back catalog of interfaith ish episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, anywhere you find podcasts. We're also on social media at interfaith ish. And you can keep writing us about the interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaith-ish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at TacomaRadio.org. Music